The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I lied to you on yesterday's podcast. Today is not the move into the Atlantic Division. It's mailbag day. I kept forgetting to do it, and for that, I apologize. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, everybody. I am Dan Vespers, your host. This is a hoop ball presentation, hoop-ball.com, and we have a couple of things to talk about before we even get into the mailbag that I posted a week ago. <laughs> I kind of forgot to re-promote it. Also, I've lost my voice a little bit from <clears throat> yelling and freaking out because no one's sleeping around here these days. Uh, so you'll have to bear with me a little bit on that front, trying to get the old vocal cords loosened up here first thing in the morning as we roll into podcast town. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball, of course, is at Hoopball Fantasy or at Hoopball Tweets. Uh, additional wonderful episodes of Today in Sports Betting are available. Uh, Devin Ellington talking to Brandon Marcus for yesterday's show. He's the host of the Hoopball Clippers pod. Today's episode, Devin's going to be talking to Lyle Swithenbank, the host of the Hoopball Pelicans podcast. And, of course, Brandon and Lyle both are big into other stuff as well. You get a little bit of their background stories, some stuff on gambling. Those are really fun. You should definitely check those out. Uh, should have a Hoopball Nets episode coming up here in the not-too-distant future. We got Hoopball Pelicans episode from a couple days ago, in case you guys missed that one. Check them all out. The Denver Nuggets are profiled by Steve over at Hoopball Central. That's on the Hoopball Fantasy feed. Nikola Jokic got his own piece. It is a lot of fun, and I hope you guys managed to catch the Hoopball Expansion Draft live show from last night with Doug Santino and William. That aired on our YouTube channel. And you can watch it on a replay now. It's going to be available in perpetuity over at the Hoopball YouTube channel. So definitely check that out as soon as you have available time. Uh, in terms of actual player news, Kevon Looney underwent surgery yesterday. And Boyan Bogdanovich underwent surgery the previous day. We never talked about either of those. So that's on the docket for today. We had news on the NBA's potential resumption coming up in the not-too-distant future that I'd like to cover before we get into the actual mailbag. So player news, since we haven't really had that in forever. Uh, Kevon Looney, we'll start with the easy one. Looney is not really a factor. In fact, a lot of stuff has been coming out of Warriors country these days, talking about how Golden State is actually comfortable going into next season with Marquise Chris as the starting center. And when we talked about the Warriors on their post-mortem here about a month ago on Fantasy NBA Today, that was one of the notes was, look, is this team going to bring in a big man and blow up that front court? If not, even as the fifth option, which is basically what uh, Looney, or excuse me, what uh, Chris would be, although you could make the argument that Draymond Green really doesn't want to be taking any shots at all, he would still carry fantasy value because he will rebound, because he will block and steal, because he will shoot a high percentage. There's not going to be the type of usage and scoring we saw towards the end of this year from him. But when you play alongside Steph and Clay and Draymond, and then you throw in Andrew Wiggins for good measure, if you're a big man who can get to the rim and get out in transition, you're going to make headway. So the, all the, you know, and, and I'm talking about Marquise Chris, even though the, the news was about Kevon Looney. I don't know that I believe Looney is really a big part of their future. This, you know, this was a surgery on his core muscles, which those take forever to recover. I know we not, might not see next season until December, which should be more than enough time. But the neuropathy stuff, everything about Kevon Looney screams, this is a guy that's probably not going to have a super long NBA career. And it's sad, but the Warriors are looking for a young, affordable big man. They can stick in with a lot of other bigger contracts and Marquise Chris might just damn well be that guy. The other surgery news was a little bit more impactful from a fantasy standpoint because if indeed the season comes back, and it's starting to seem like it will, based on the next thing we're going to talk about on today's podcast, the Utah Jazz will not have Boyan Bogdanovich. 
He's out for some time now, and he was in the process of putting together a pretty darn good season, sitting just inside the top 100 on 20 points per game, 45% shooting from the field, 41% from downtown. He had three three-pointers a game, shot 90% at the free throw line. Doesn't do anything defensively, which was a, a pretty big knock on him. You know, he managed to get a round one steal last year with Indiana. But we know Utah does no gambling at all on the defensive end. Those guys just don't get steals in Utah. And so that cut someone who already wasn't doing much defensively down to almost nothing. 0.5 steals and 0.1 blocks. You can find one of those roughly every 10 games from Bogdanovich. Some of his petering out. Remember, this is a guy that was sitting around the top 75-ish for the first couple of months. Hurt his hand. Played through it. Wrist stuff for, I know, hashtag thumb stuff, played through it for about two months. And then, you know, I don't know that he would have been ready to go when the season resumed if he had gotten his surgery right when the COVID stuff hit. But, you know, there's the elective surgery issue. Most of these hospitals are not doing things that are not related to the coronavirus. And so, you know, if that's why he waited, and it might very well be, now it leaves him with not enough time to recover. Looking towards next year, he might actually be a draft day value. I know we talked about the Jazz, and I thought he'd be actually maybe a little bit overdrafted because of the 20 points per game. But it's possible now, in looking at some of his recent seasons, particularly the two years in Indiana, extremely durable, for one, and he was going to play through this thing. Shot 47 and 50% the last two years before, I would venture to guess, the injury caused his numbers this season to take a step back to 45%. So if you put up 20 points per game and he gets that back up to 47% next year, that's a big leap. That's top 100. That's probably two rounds of value because suddenly a net negative becomes either a neutral or slight positive. It hurts Utah this season going forward, but you know who it helps is probably Joe Ingles as we look towards the stretch run. If he's available, your league is allowing pickups, I wouldn't think, to, I mean, I would probably make that move. It opened up a lot of space on the wing for a Jazz team that has sort of one more guy than they know what to do with. So let's rewind this thing just a little bit and go look at the Utah Jazz because we haven't really seen what that team might be without Bogdanovich. He had played in almost every game this season. But the one thing that jumped out in the middle of the year is that Joe Ingles, when Mike Conley was out, took on a much, much larger role. This is a little bit different because for Ingles, a lot of that surge with Conley on the shelf was that he was the lead assist guy. He moved in front of Donovan Mitchell as the lead playmaker. In fact, he finished the season here, or you know, finished this part of the season with more assists than anyone else. Ingles led the team with 5.2 assists per ball game. But the low steals number, that's been a big thorn in the Ingles side. He's playing 30 minutes a game, so that hasn't really been the issue, but taking just 7.7 shots. So you look at it and you're like, okay, you know what? If the volume comes up a little bit for this guy, that's an area where he might be able to make that leap forward. In addition, one would assume it's more shots for Conley, Donovan Mitchell as well, those normal guys, and you'll probably see, and I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, more shots for Jordan Clarkson, who needs a ton of of shots to get inside the fantasy value. So if you're looking at winners from this, you're probably saying, all right, Donovan Mitchell's going to have to do a tiny bit more. Mike Conley's going to do a little bit more. And then Joe Ingles is probably going to see the biggest bump because there's just very little standing in his way. Even if you're talking about Boyan sliding up and playing more power forward, I don't think the Jazz are going to have much choice but to use more Joe Ingles. And he's probably not going to have much choice but to actually take a few more shots. We'll cross that bridge when we get there, uh, and if we get there. And the reason I want to cross that bridge when we get there is because there's still a lot that's kind of hanging in the balance. Yesterday, we got word via a series of tweets from the usual suspects, Shams and Woj, that we're noting that the NBA is moving towards Orlando as the return-to-play bubble site, which is a really big deal. And that June 1st is when teams are expected to expand their workouts, meaning around the beginning of June, we're expecting to get some kind of decision. But the fact that this, there's all these stories being leaked about good things taking place, it's a ramp up. There's going to be most likely a quarantining time once teams all get back into the same city. Then there's going to be kind of a spring training type deal for the NBA where they've got to kind of ramp up. Not a full training camp, I would think. Maybe 
what do we what do we figure two to three weeks perhaps and then we saw and I don't know if this was not from Shams or Woj so I don't know if it's been fully verified yet that the NBA is thinking something like five to seven either exhibition or end of the regular season type games before leading into the playoffs I have beef with that by the way though I understand some of the upsides The main upside to that method is that NBA players get a bigger paycheck if they hit a 70-game played threshold for the entire season. So a lot of these teams want to get from 64 or 65 to 70. That's where they're at right now, and it won't take more than about one and a half to two weeks to get to that next payment threshold. From a logistical standpoint, it's a total nightmare because how do you pick what six games happen? Is it going to be the final six games of the year, like each team was actually playing their stretch run? Is it the next six games they had on their schedule before the season ended? Is it a brand new six-game round-robin type deal where teams mostly play within their division or conference to try to make this non-really-existent playoff chase seem more relevant? Because right now, if you cut... And, and we're looking at a lot of teams playing 17, 18 games if they want the entire remaining five weeks of the season. There's actually a little bit of a question mark there, particularly in the Western Conference, where Memphis has a pretty good lead on three different teams. So there, there was someone, not breathing down their neck, but, you know, a little warm air from a distance on their neck. With 18 games, that's something for the Grizzlies to worry about. With six... It's basically over. If you cut it down to six games, no one chasing a playoff spot is really going to convince themselves they have a chance, and you're going to get this sort of semi-shutdown thing where a bunch of guys don't really want to be there. You'll probably see teams that are on the outside kind of turn to what we normally see the final week of the regular season, the ultimate silly season. They're not going to play their superstars more than a couple minutes a game. You're going to see the teams that are in the playoffs pretty much win all of their games down the stretch. And it's just going to be this weird tune-up thing, which I realize is what they want, but I don't know why that should actually count for anything. That's that's where I run into a little bit of an issue. But I get it. There's money on the line, so you just get it done. And from our perspective, at this point, you know damn well any basketball would be pretty good basketball, especially if it led into a fun playoff scenario, which it sounds like right now would be best of sevens in every round, just like normal. I'm excited. Before we get into the the mailbag, and and don't worry, we'll we'll zip through that here in a little bit. I am excited by the fact that pretty much every single day right now, we are getting additional good news about the NBA and sports in general. And I know there's a lot kind of hanging in the balance more on the baseball side because they've got these this economic war going on between owners and players where the NBA is a little bit more of a unified front. But generally speaking, you're hearing about better testing. You're hearing about plans being put in place. Uh, Keith Smith, who uh, was kind of the first person to even talk about the NBA maybe going to Orlando, noted that one of the Disney property's most ritzy remodeled hotels has basically just been blocked off for the entire month of July. He's thinking that perhaps that's for the NBA. We'll see. Right? I mean, we're all doing some some digging here, some sleuthing. But what the big guys are putting out right now, Shams and Woj, what the big guys are putting out is that there is optimism. They're still trying to figure out exactly how this thing is going to shake out, but they feel pretty darn good about it happening in Orlando, at least part of it in Orlando, and getting games in. And probably by July. The latest thing we heard was that teams would reconvene at the beginning of June, a couple weeks of quarantine, Three to two to three weeks of kind of a training camp ramp up and then games by early to mid July, which is still unfortunately a little bit under two months away. Uh, and we've God, it's the simultaneously the fastest and the longest two months we've ever been in. I know we've only been without the NBA for a little over two months, but you know what? Either way, however you cut the math, that puts us on the downslope. That puts us on the downslope. So that's pretty sweet. Mailbag time. Let's dig into the mailbag because I put this out a week ago. I forgot to do it earlier this week. We're finally getting around to it today because I'm an idiot. And so we're going to do that now. And some of them are silly questions and I'm going to answer those all the same. 
I don't know why Twitter doesn't put the questions in the order that they were received. I really have no idea. It's not... I think it orders them in terms of people that I've interacted with in the past or perhaps I have followed, and then it puts the ones down towards the bottom of the list of people that I haven't interacted with before. I don't know, but suffice it to say, I'm not reading these in any particular order. This is just the way Twitter listed them on my computer screen, and so we'll go through them one by one. Rubens, who is among our wonderful hoop ball staff over here, puts out the question, who would have had a better wrestling career? Shaquille O'Neal or Dennis Rodman? And the answer is, I think pretty easily, actually, Dennis Rodman, because he's a crazy person. Shaq is silly. Shaq is silly, but Rodman is crazy. If you take Shaq maybe the first couple of years of his career, this would have been a better fight when he was a little bit more slender. But if you recall the Lakers-era Shaq, he was known for coming into training camp Nikola Jokic style, like 30, 40 pounds overweight at least, and then just kind of running it off as the season moved into the middle parts. He would just work himself into shape. He was huge coming into the start of seasons in L.A. towards the the final few years of his time in Los Angeles, which, I mean, it's not like he was there forever. Uh, and for Rodman, you know, he he played giant, grueling, bruising minutes and was just always on and you need that you need that level of insanity I think on the wrestling side you need to be a little bit more limber I would say Shaq didn't have that towards the the later stage of his career uh Rodman did up until the very end and Dennis had this motor that as great as a basketball player as Shaq was he never had the motor that Rodman had uh where Dennis would just go nuts and then you know he'd go pull like two back-to-back all-night benders in Las Vegas and then come back and play another 42 minutes in a basketball game not that that's what you need to be uh, a pro wrestler but the traveling the the beating that you're taking there and then just the personality side he was so goofy he would have been a great heel Shaq's too likable man he's too likable Christian Slick Rock who by the way I don't know if you guys know this he did the music for uh, Fantasy NBA Today. That sweet jam you hear at the beginning of this show, that's Christian. So check him out. He's at SlickRock on Twitter, S-L-I-C-K-R-A-C-H, R-A-C-H at the end of that. Can you picture a Fantasy League format that isn't available yet? Christian suggests maybe a roto season with some kind of tournament. Always thought there was a way to combine the two. Uh, yeah, there is, and and sort of this the simple answer to this, without getting too overly weird or creative, is number one, you add in uh, a playoff format, meaning that the regular season, and you can do this either direction. If you want the regular season to be head to head, and the playoff season to be roto, I'm fine with that because it does eliminate a little bit of the silly season. In fact, if you love head to head. And if you love the fact that you get to pick on people all season long, that would be the way you could do it. Or maybe you love the ins- the, the complete and total off-the-wall chaos of a silly season head-to-head playoffs. You could actually do Roto for the regular season and start your playoffs on, I don't know, March the 8th or something like that, and then convert it into head-to-head. That wouldn't be that hard. The issue here is, and, and those are sort of the easy ways to do it, but the issue is a lot of people draft differently for Roto than head-to-head. It brings in a lot of goofy strategic elements that probably weren't there before and also brings in a lot of luck elements where you've almost eliminated your ability to punt something if you want to make sure that you're in a pretty good seed going into the playoffs. And so let's say, for example, your that Roto was your regular season. You're probably going to try to be pretty good in the percentage categories, which is, I think, less relevant in a head-to-head league. You're probably going to try to be at least okay in turnovers if this is a nine-category league. And then all of a sudden, in mid-March, it flips into a head-to-head battle, and the fact that your team is fairly well-rounded probably doesn't stack you up all that great in a head-to-head playoff scenario. And the same is the case if you flip it the other way around, although I believe it's a little bit less severe if you have head-to-head for your entire regular season, which I think is probably the better way if we were going to combine these things because it eliminates a little bit 
of that kind of randomness of the head-to-head playoffs. And then you can twist into Roto for the final five weeks of the season. I don't care, something like that. You just take the top six teams and they battle it out in a Roto format. That's a little bit easier to handle. You can set a games cap if you want. You probably should or make it weekly. And then you, at that point, you probably don't have to change your strategy that much because if you know the playoffs are going to be Roto style, you probably didn't punt much during the regular season. Now, if we want to get really strange, because I'm sure there's some sort of other format we could look at that that isn't fully available yet, you're probably looking, instead of combining the two formats at tweaking some of the formats, at the moment, I actually don't really want to make that many large-scale changes. I think most of the stuff that I like to do, I can do as the commissioner of my leagues, which is kind of change the way that position eligibility works and change the way the uh, waiver priority and, and waiver time works and trades work. Little things like that to me are all you really need to make your leagues a- as great as possible. I don't think that you need to be able to create a brand new format of fantasy NBA. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. I know we should always be always be thinking about the future and iterating and making sure everything is perfect. I love a Roto Fantasy League as much as anything right now. They're just, they're so fantastic. I mean, you can add so many different categories. There, there are so many options right now that creating something completely new is a little bit wacky. And, you know, if you haven't, what I'll say to everybody listening is this. If you haven't tried a playoff league, that might be a fun thing that maybe you haven't done before. Playoff leagues actually correspond to the real NBA playoffs, You have a brand new draft during the two days between the end of the regular season and the start of the playoffs, and it's Roto style, meaning there's advantages to drafting guys that you think you're going to go deep into the playoffs because you're going to get more games out of them, and there's advantages to drafting guys you think you're going to put up better numbers on a minute-to-minute basis, even if perhaps their team is going to get eliminated in the first or second round. You want to try to pile up those big stats quickly as opposed to, I don't know, if you think, say, the Lakers are going to go all the way to the finals, maybe Danny Green is actually more valuable than, I don't know, who do we think gets cut out in the first round? Uh, Spencer Dinwiddie? I, I mean, it's a bad example. Who's in the who's with Memphis? Like Jonas Valanciunas or something like that. Neither one of those was a, a particularly great example, but consider someone in the... I might get eliminated in the first round tier of teams right now. Oh, okay, here's one. How about Nikola Vucevic? Because Orlando's probably going to get wiped out pretty fast in the playoffs this year, but he's a top 20 fantasy asset who might only play four games. Or do you take Danny Green on the Lakers, who might very well play, oh, I don't know, depending on how some of their rounds go like that. They might end up having to play the Clippers at some point in there. Does it take them... I don't know, five or six games to knock off a team like the Rockets or the, or the Nuggets or something to that effect. Well, then you're looking at a team that's, you know, four, five, seven, seven, something like that. You might get 20 to 23 games out of plodding top 150 Danny Green, and that would probably be better than four games out of uh, Vucevic. So it, it's a pretty neat little format. You have to try to weigh games played versus production on a per-game basis. When someone gets eliminated... They just don't accrue stats anymore. You have your, whatever it is, 10, 12 guys that you just start for the entirety of the playoffs, and whoever drafts the best total accrued stats is your winner. I did that my first year with HoopBall. I haven't really had time to do it lately uh, because generally there's a lot of other things going on. (laughs) Maybe this year I'll do one because I'm so starved for, for basketball. Uh, but if you want to try something new, that's something I, I, I'm guessing a lot of you have not explored. It's kind of fun. Maybe do a free one, and then you can dive into it and put some money on it next year or something like that. Kieran asks, if the NBA plays out this season, do we see Clay Thompson back on the court? I doubt it. I seriously doubt it. I mean, they could, but again, if we're talking about five or six games instead of 17, there's no reason for the Warriors to put him back out there. They have the worst record in the NBA. They might as well stay in the bottom three. Him playing has no upside for them the only there's only downside does he get re-injured it's not really enough time for him to get his sea legs underneath him they might accidentally win a game or two because Steph is probably going to be playing because he wants to 
I mean, maybe something insane happens because we know how much these guys want to be back on the court. Maybe he does go out there and play a couple of minutes, but it's not going to be enough for fantasy value if that's sort of the follow-up question on this one. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I mean, the obvious answer is he shouldn't, and we've said that how many times in the last decade? No, they shouldn't, and then they do anyway. Uh, Kieran also notes that for listening to you for the better part of a year on one and a half speed on my morning commute, he's back on his PC, presumably because everybody's at home right now, and I sound like I've been drugged. I don't talk that slowly. I guess I talk slower than some podcasts. It's kind of the baseball play-by-play guy in me where I like to let things amble along at a little bit of a sing-song pace every once in a while. This is not a sprint. We do a show every damn day. This isn't a sprint. I could get through the content of the day in, in 20 minutes, but what's the point of that? Let's have a little fun. Let's think things through. Let's explore some weird side paths. And I promise if I'm drugged, you will know it. Rob B. says, Jerry Krause or MJ, who's the better front office executive? I know that's uh, a joke. It's very clearly Jerry Krause, even though everybody blames him for blowing up the Bulls and being kind of a cancerous presence towards the end of that The Last Dance run that we just all watched. He did manage to somehow assemble a team that won six championships, and uh, MJ's assembled the team that's made the playoffs, what, any one time? I honestly don't even remember. So yeah, that one's not really close. Uh, real question from Rob is biggest surprise players this year who I think might take a step back next year. That's a really good question. Top name on my list is probably Brandon Ingram. Not necessarily because I think his game is going to take a massive step back, but I just think that his usage is going to take a massive step back. And we saw the first hints at it with Zion kind of ramping up on that team. And it wasn't as though Ingram turned into a total pumpkin, but he was a top 20 asset until Zion came back, and he was much more of like a 50, 60, 70 kind of guy afterwards. So he's still going to be decent, I think, at the very least. Probably even, we can go as far as saying, he's probably going to be good. But is good enough for where it's probably going to cost you guys on draft day? And the answer is almost definitely no. Uh, other guys that took a big step forward this year that that might take a step back, I, I mean, it, it's tough to know what to expect from a guy like Jonathan Isaac if he can kind of pick up where he left off with those intense defensive stats, which have been unbelievable and marvelous, and then his season got cut short. And that was another one where even when we were doing our post-morta, we didn't really know where he was going to get drafted next year, so I don't know that I want to necessarily put him in this guys that might take a step back category. But there is a lot, a lot, a lot of uncertainty around whether or not he can kind of pick up where he left off and where he'll be drafted. And so you have to be just a tiny bit on the uh, the cautious side there. Among other guys that took a step forward, I don't think that there are guys that are likely to take a big step back. And the, what I mean by this is, I mean, maybe you could look at someone like Adavis Bertans. A lot of what you're looking at with step back, and, and it, this was the case when we just talked about Brandon Ingram a second ago, is just will they have the same opportunity? Because I don't know how many of these guys... I mean, Brandon Ingram was one of the few guys that took a legitimate fantasy stat set step forward. Most of these other guys, Davis Bertans being one, uh, among other names that I'm sure we could find if we did a, some serious digging on this question, are guys that were uh, already... You knew their stat set, and they just needed to be on the floor more often. So if you're looking at guys that might not be on the floor as often next year, Davis Bertans is probably one of them, just because you have to assume the Wizards will be a little bit more healthy next year than they were this year. Brandon Ingram will be on the floor plenty, but probably won't have as many touches this season as last season. The list uh, continues if you sort of roll down through the numbers and, and Nemanja Bielitsa, there's almost no way the Kings are going to be as banged up next year as this year. Do we see Boston pick up a center and Daniel Tice becomes less fantasy relevant? There are names of guys that will just be on the floor less, but I don't know if there are that many guys that are going to have a fantasy stat set step backwards. So I hope I'm answering the right question here. The answer is nobody takes a true step back, but plenty of guys will just have less opportunity, and that's where we separate guys that are getting overdrafted next year from guys that are getting underdrafted next year. 
And we'll assess that once we get ADP numbers in a few months. Our guy Doug, uh, part of our live crew here at Hoopball, says, with the loss in revenue, do you think the uh, NBA will actually drop the salary cap? And if so, who do you see it affecting the most? That's a really good question. The answer from what I've researched so far is that the is yes, but it's much more nuanced than that. And this is where we sort of get out of my depth a tiny bit. There are discussions about cap smoothing where you'll see it come down slowly or come down partway, but last into years even after the revenue comes back. Meaning instead of doing like a $30 million salary cap cut all in one year, which is going to send a ton of teams into the luxury tax and ruin free agent markets and stuff like that, do we see them bring it down by, say, $10 million and stretch it over however many number of years that requires? Five, six years instead of two years of a $30 million cut, do we see six years of a $10 million cut? Or do we see a $10 million cut this year and then a $15 million cut the following and then 20 after that and you try to work your way up to whatever that total number is and just do it over four, five years instead of two to create a little bit more wiggle room for the teams involved. Uh, teams that it's going to impact are the guys that are that have the highest salary caps right now. I mean, you can you can look at there are there are plenty of websites out there that have NBA salary standings among the teams, uh, and who has the most and who has the least, and you can basically just look at the teams at the top of that chart, and also. I would throw on some of the teams at the bottom of that chart that might have been saving up money to blow on something, but certainly it's the teams at the top. The folks that are already in the luxury tax and already have nowhere to go with their salaries, now suddenly they can't even clear down to the... They thought they were going to get there. They thought they might get near the salary cap, and then it's going to just run away from them. So, I, you know, I don't know that it's going to impact uh, a, a ton of... It's not going to be... I mean, everybody's going to get hit by it a little bit, but if you want to sort of pare it down to kind of more of a broad stroke view of this, the teams that have the biggest salaries right now, current free agents are going to get clobbered. And then if you find almost any player with a player option for the 2020-2021 NBA season, you can pretty much assume they're going to take it. So that might be the easiest answer to that question. Ashley Huggins says, Dan, you don't talk much about dynasty values on your pod. During the suspension, it remains relevant for many of us. Maybe a segment digging into players or someone that might break out who I'm high on long term, like someone like a Robert Williams or a Mo Bamba. Well, Ashley, that's just sort of not my thing. I'm not a big dynasty guy. I'll admit it. I'm in a keeper league, but it's not dynasty style. And you guys know how much I hate rookies. Let me tell you why I'm not a big dynasty guy. Two main reasons. Number one. Uh, I, I'm so knee deep in all of this stuff that adding a dynasty league to my, my ledger right now would cause me to not spend time with my family. And so I pretty much can't do that. And if I did, I'd have to eliminate probably three or four other leagues just to make sure I was spending enough time with it. And second, I like leagues where you can start it over every year. I don't want to have the same guys on my team for 15 years. I just don't want it. Maybe I should have said three reasons. Uh, so reason number two is I want to do a new draft at the beginning of each year that's not just rookies. I want to draft everybody. I want, it to, I want it to find all the values. I want to do all the digging and research, and I want to look at the guys that are overdrafted and avoid them. This is all fun for me. I want to do a ton of pickups and drops during the year. I don't want to just sit on a franchise forever. And third, and this is the most important reasons I don't do much Dynasty stuff, I don't trust they're ever going to last more than three years. Someone's going to win, and then they're going to have to rebuild, and then they're going to quit. And you can try to find someone to take that spot. And certainly now that I'm sort of a hoop ball personality, if you want to call it that, which sounds so goofball. I mean, as recently as two years ago, I would have struggled to fill up a league. Now, you know, certainly with, that, with the power of this podcast and with the power of hoop ball, we have like, what, 20 or 30 hoop ball leagues, so it's not not an issue in that respect. And if somebody dropped out, I'm sure you could get somebody to come back in. I just trust in human nature at the end of the day. And if I'm in a dynasty league and I'm like building up for a team that's going to win in four years, there's no guarantee that the league even exists in four years. So now I'm paying into this coffer that I might never have a chance to come back and get later. Can't stand it. Don't do it. Uh, and so I focus on redraft for the most part. Now, that said, 
That doesn't mean we're not going to do any Dynasty stuff on this podcast. And so we'll get uh, some of our favorite guys back on the show. We'll talk to Adrian Benjamins. He's my rookie guy. Uh, plenty of dudes here at Hoopball are big into Dynasty, and we'll just have them on the show here uh, because Lord knows we're going to need things to talk about. And they can bring up some of their young guys that they're into as they look towards the future. Uh, Garrett says, what do you think about deciding this year's championship with elaborate games of elimination horse? Each player from each team competing would have their own court to themselves. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I have no idea. I feel like if they could get Kyrie Irving back on the floor, Brooklyn might actually win the championship if this is the way that you went. Um, luckily, since I posted this mailbag, We've had a lot of really positive news about the NBA. It sounds more and more like we are going to get NBA at some point here in the next two months. So we're probably not going to need an elaborate, strange way to uh, decide our, our league champion. But I got no problem with that. The only problem is they, need to, they would need to figure out how to do a better job of televising the thing. And I don't know how they would pull that off because if we're really still doing completely solo stuff, who the hell's recording this? Like the player's kid? Like, one of them has, like, a six-year-old. They're going to just hold up an iPhone camera and film their dad taking weird shots. Yeah. What other solo formats could exist that would be entertaining? All-star skills competition-style things. Ooh, interesting. Well, uh, you might have to go outside the realm of NBA if this is what you wanted. You could have kind of the irreverent take and NBA players doing non-NBA things, perhaps playing a different sport. Michael Jordan made it to double A in baseball. Maybe we could have them uh, hitting baseballs. Or, yeah, I mean, you know me. I'm always a fan of the three-point competition, and you just sort of put different guys on different teams in, in different scenarios. You take probably the starting five of each team, and you come up with five competition games, and each team has to sort of pick their battle. I don't know if any of you guys do much in the sort of role-playing game stuff in, in video games, but it would be a little bit like that, where you'd have, like, the the passer, your point guard, if it's a point guard, or, you know, LeBron is kind of the Lakers passer, and he's small forward, whatever. And they'd be in the passing competition. Then you'd have the dunker in the dunking competition. You might have a three-point shooter on your team in the three-point competition. Uh, it's a little bit like that all-star style stuff, but I think each team would have to pick one guy... There'd be five competitions, so it'd be like a starting five, and teams would put up particular metrics in that. I don't know how on earth you keep people from cheating. I don't know how you would keep a, a guy from recording himself 20 times and just submitting the one where he had his best time or most successful conclusion other than to say, you know, we're going to call you in and we're going to do it live and you get one shot at this. And that's probably how you get around that thing. So that could be kind of fun. Uh, so let's, um, I, don't, I don't know. We have to take a team that has a much easier to decipher starting five. I'm, I'm thinking about the Lakers because they're my hometown team. But uh, let's, let's look at a team that has a much simpler starting five to analyze. And, um, I don't know. Who the hell has an easy starting five in the NBA right now? Denver had an easy starting five this year. Denver. Okay. Let's assume you had Denver as one of your teams in this playoff format, and you, and you would because they're in the playoffs. So you have, a, you have a dunk, you have a passing competition, you have a three-point shooting competition. Uh, maybe you have a, I don't know, trick shot competition, like a half-court shot, and oh, geez, what would the fifth thing? Maybe there has to be like a defense competition involved in this. So there's your five things. And you, I'm sure, guys, if you had more time to really think this over, could come up with something better than I did that I'm kind of doing on the fly here. I think I assume you'd put Nikola Jokic in the passing competition. You'd probably put Gary Harris in the defense competition. Will Barton would probably be your dunker on that team. Maybe, uh, no, I think I'd go Barton over Jamal Murray. Murray probably in the three-point shooting, and then Paul Millsap is your make-a-half-court shot guy. <laughs> That's like the where just throw someone in there if it doesn't clearly fit some other mold. So you take your starting five, you put one of them in each of those competitions, whatever they are, whatever, you know, if it's a how much time it takes or uh, if you have to do something X number of times, you add it all up, and then the team with the best total, there's your champion. So there you go. There's, there's my roundabout screwy answer to that question. Brand X says, hey, Dan, do you think rankings 
can be uh, misleading. That is, oh, and this was, by the way, this was one that we hinted at a little bit earlier in the week. That is someone like Brooke Lopez only being elite in blocks, but lacking in most other categories. I'd much rather have a player like Aaron Gordon, for example, even if his rank is lower. This is just one example, but you get my drift. Uh, hang 10, cheers. Yeah, that's a great question, Brand X. And, I, you know, we hinted at it when I was talking about the uh, Chris Dunn, I think. It was on our Chicago Bulls episode of the podcast because he is so good in one category. Now, what we talked about earlier this week was if you look at someone like Brooke Lopez, because he really doesn't do much in other categories, yes, that's a, that's a, a, a hit on him, but he's also not horrible in those other categories. So just to quickly rehash here what we talked about on the Bulls episode of the show, <clears throat> which I believe was two days ago now, Brooke Lopez is a little bit below league average in scoring, Pretty close to league average in threes. A little bit below in rebounds. A little bit below in assists. A little bit below in steals. A little bit below in field goal percent. A little bit better in free throw. Fair amount better in turnovers. And then crazy good in blocks. The reason that matters is because it's not like he has 2.5 blocks a game and he's going for 8 points and 2 rebounds. He's going for 11 and almost 5. Which is enough to float you in those categories. And we talked about it on the Our Bulls episode as well. If you look at the NBA right now and you look at your fantasy rankings, the guys that are okay in everything are inside the top 65. We talked about Will Barton being very close to league average in almost every statistical category. He was number 67 this year. Being league average in everything is very good. Because there are very few players that are league average in everything. Almost everybody in the NBA has this one gaping hole in their fantasy game. Now, for Brooke Lopez, yeah, he's a little bit below in, you know, assists for one. That's his worst category compared to the league, but he's a center, so you can kind of write that off just a little bit. Otherwise, he's not that far away from league average in most of his stuff. So you put league average or close to it in seven-ish out of nine categories and you put uh, a little bit worse than that in assists and way better than that in blocks, and suddenly you have a top 60 guy. Now, Aaron Gordon isn't the best example because he was actually rolling at a top 40 clip down the stretch, but if you take Aaron Gordon that isn't getting five and a half assists a ball game, basically the last three and a half years of Aaron Gordon as kind of a top 130, not way worse than that, top 150 kind of guy, you should definitely want Brooke Lopez over Aaron Gordon in normal circumstances. If you look at some of the guys in Aaron Gordon's range this year, which is guys kind of in that 125-130 range, I mean, you could argue Ja Morant at 127, yes, yeah, 17.6 points is better than league average, and 7 assists is better than league average, but everything else with him is close to league average or significantly worse, right? This is really important. He was way worse than league average in turnovers. And I get it. With nine cat, that makes a pretty big deal. Or look at someone like, I don't know, Kendrick Nunn, 15.5 points, 2.7 rebounds, 3.4 assists. Some of these things look pretty good, but being pretty good in a couple of things is actually way less important than being outstanding in one thing. Outstanding is very hard to find. If you have Brooke Lopez, you don't need to get blocks from like three other guys on your fantasy team. There's just almost no one else out there that can do that type of stuff. It's why these guys are ranked so high. Miles Turner with kind of a clunky year, 52. Mitchell Robinson, clunky year, uh, 50. I know he was really good in field goal percent as well. Uh, some of these other guys, Hassan Whiteside, three blocks a game. He was number eight, and I know he was good in a couple other things as well, but these things float value for a reason. Being, and to call them a specialist, I think it doesn't even do them the right amount of service, because specialist is like being pretty good in a category. I would say specialist in blocks would be more like a Jakob Pertl, 1.4 blocks a game, or JaVale McGee at 1.5. We're talking about 2.5 blocks per game. I don't care if you're head-to-head -head or roto. Head-to-head, -head, if you have Brooke Lopez and you go up against a team that doesn't have someone blocking two shots a game on their roster, 
you're probably going to win that category almost no matter what else is going on on your team. These are critical pieces. And if he plays all 82 games, you're talking about 200 blocks. That's a ton. Look at your Roto League right now and tell me what the blocks standings look like as we speak at this moment. What's your block ranking look like? Who's leading your league in blocks right now? What do they have? 500-something? you telling me Brooke Lopez, one guy, one guy could knock out like 30% of what blocks you'd need to win that category? One guy. 40% even, if you're comparing it right now to even being half decent in it. Probably more like 30 if you kind of look at how everything else works. Uh... The, the team in my league that had, had actually played 120 games in Roto had 457 blocks. If Brooke Lopez played all 82 games, which he wouldn't, he'd miss a couple, he'd have 200. That'd be over 40% of what uh, of that team's blocks. So Aaron Gordon being kind of not a great example right now because he was playing better, but if you compare Brooke Lopez to someone who's ranked 40, 50 slots behind him and not trending up in a huge way... You definitely want the specialist. It's one of those weird things where you can sort of psych yourself out a little bit. You're like, yeah, well, I know the rankings say this, but he's really only good in this one category. No, he's not really only good in one category. He is great. He is above and beyond great in one statistical category. As a point of reference, Brooke Lopez was number 60. The players in front of him were T.J. Warren, D'Angelo Russell, Marcus Smart, Kevin Love, Norman Powell, Jamal Murray, Tobias Harris, and then you get to Miles Turner. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The seven players in front of Brooke Lopez, this is kind of a funny game we're going to play right now, combined 2.7 blocks per game. And I get it. There weren't a ton of big men in there. Kevin Love was the only center. T.J. Warren, Norman Powell, Tobias Harris, you could call those guys forwards. So I get it, you didn't have a bunch of centers in that run. But Brook Lopez by himself almost outblocked the seven guys right in front of him in fantasy rankings. If you can find someone that's going to get you 200 blocks over the course of a season, they are automatically, automatically inside the top 100. And then everything else is just gravy. JaVale McGee was the first shot blocker to not make the top 100 this year. And he's at 1.5. That's a scant 120 blocks over an 82-game season. Roughly. All these other guys, they don't even have to do anything else. They don't have to do anything else. And they're inside the top 60. The rankings are there for a reason. Follow them. Listen to them. I've mentioned it before that there are some categories where being a specialist is a little bit less important than others, but on the whole, that's actually more the exception than the rule. The rule is if you have someone who is roughly, I mean, a winning league average, I guess we should say, league average in shot blocking this year was about 0.6.7. So if you're finding someone who's almost four times better than league average in any statistical category. They should be ranked really high. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. If league average is about 0.7 in blocks and Brooke Lopez is at 2.5, that's between three and four times the league average. What about league average in scoring, for instance? It's 15. So that's basically like someone putting up around 45 points a game. It doesn't quite level off the same way because of how things stagger. Like James Harden averaging 34 points per game is pretty much the same impact as Brooke Lopez getting two and a half blocks a game because there's this big drop-off behind Harden. Goes from 34 down to 31. Okay, there's just sort of no one near him, and that's the way that weighted averages work. If you're that far ahead of everyone, and Brooke Lopez was part of a group, and he was still in second place in that statistical category. But, I mean, you can look at it in a lot of different ways. Somebody's hitting... uh, There was no one in the NBA that hit enough three-pointers to have that kind of weight 
on its impact. No one in the entire NBA. That would have been about a little over four and a half three-pointers a game. Harden got close at 4.4, but no one got there. What about rebounding? Andre Drummond was about as close as anyone got in that category at 15.2. His rebounding had about the same impact as Brooke Lopez with 2.5 blocks per game. LeBron, at almost 11 assists per game, has the same impact in that number. No one in steals, by the way, had the impact of Brooke Lopez in blocks. So this is why specializing is actually very powerful. It's a very powerful tool is because it opens things up elsewhere. There has to be a little something else going on, like Mo Bamba is a good example of someone who got 1.4 blocks, which is really nice, but literally did nothing else. That's nothing else. Five points, five rebounds, and one and a half blocks. That's nothing else. Brooke Lopez, again, 11 points, five boards. He even got .7 steals for good measure, and then hit a good free throw percent. All that stuff counts. It's weird, right? Like, if it was just 2.5 blocks, and it was zero in every other category, yeah, he'd be a tough guy to own. But it's not zero. It's not good, but it's not zero. It's kind of like quietly palatable plus one whopper category. And those guys are those guys are worthwhile. So yeah, I'd still rather have Brooke Lopez than Aaron Gordon in most scenarios. Again, right now, if you were like, which one would you want if we finished out the end of this season? I probably would have said Aaron Gordon because he was playing his ass off right before the league got suspended. But Aaron Gordon from last year, per se, or Aaron Gordon from the first three months of this year, even. But down the stretch this season, yeah, he, you know, that last like three weeks, Aaron Gordon was really good. He was averaging 15, 9, and 7, but he was also at 1.3 blocks, you know? So it's not a great comparison there. But yeah, compare him to someone else in that, you know, 130 range, no question. And maybe this is a good example of how you should be building out trades in fantasy. Maybe you can get someone like Brooke Lopez from a player who doesn't value specializing quite as much. It's just math at the end of the day. It's just math. The impact that he has in one statistical category is greater than a positive impact that uh, early season Aaron Gordon had in a bunch. I get it. Gordon was better than league average in rebounding and a little bit better than league average in scoring, a little bit better than league average in assists. I don't care. I'll happily give back those three points per game and two and a half rebounds and two assists to get an extra two blocks a night. Such a big deal. It's a great question, Brand X, by the way. Great question. Glad we had a chance to dig a little bit into it. Took us longer than I expected, but you know what? That's how it goes. Tomorrow, we're going to talk to Brandon Marcus. Lessons from a season gone by with our good buddy, BD Marcus. That'll wrap up the week here on Fantasy NBA Today. Tomorrow, today's Thursday. That means there's one more day. I listen to Rebecca Black. Have a great one. We'll talk to you then. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.